Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. For this week, we got our hands on the latest generation of consoles. A bunch of stuff about Disney Plus, new studios coming in at Nickelodeon, and a whole lot more. That's right, this week I finally got my hands after weeks and months of trying on the brand new PlayStation 5. And we talk about that very much in depth, about the console, the controller, some of the games I played, and how that whole experience went. We talk about the Muppet Show finally landing on Disney+, and what Disney is doing with the dated content of that, and almost all of their stuff, really. Um, We kind of expand about that a little bit. Uh, We talk about the Pokemon Direct that dropped last week and all of the brand new Pokemon games that were announced then. We talk about Star on Disney+, Plus, their international streaming service for adult-related content. We talk about Avatar Studios over there at Nickelodeon from the makers of Avatar The Last Airbenders. I go into an in-depth discussion on Critical Role. Stop me if you've heard that one before. And then we round off the whole thing by talking about the 8th and 2nd to last episode of WandaVision before the finale next week. That's the last thing we do. Um, so if you don't want spoilers, then there you go. Anyway, if you enjoy the Going Upcast and wish to support the Going Upcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash going upcast where you can get access to such great things like the Pokemon Nuzlocke run and Pokemon Ultra Sun. Or... Um, and or, not just not one or the other. Or you can uh, take a listen to the movie commentary tracks. And we had just uploaded Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban up on Patreon a few days ago. So that is very brand new and very exciting. It is historically my least favorite... Uh, I was going to say my least favorite Pokemon movie. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, the Pokemon movies would be fun to watch. My least favorite Harry Potter movie. Uh, so you can see if I change my mind by uh, by going over to Patreon.com and becoming a supporter and just watching the movie with me yammering in your ear the entire time. It's a blast. It's a total blast. Uh, this episode is just chock-a-block full of shit. And I hope you very much enjoy it because goddamn was it fun to put together, especially that PlayStation stuff. Um, that was just an absolute blast. And yeah, I think that's enough for me jammering. Let's get into this episode of the podcast. So the Muppet Show finally landed on Disney Plus, and after seeing about ten episodes so far. Um, just like higgledy-piggledy, like the first handful of episodes in season one, and then a couple of episodes here, there, and everywhere, so I could see, like, you know, guest stars I, I knew and like. Um, and one thing is, uh, is cropping up, uh, every now and then in these episodes, and it's kind of an interesting, t- like, thing to study and look for. Every now and then, um, one of the episodes will give you a warning, Uh, ahead of time that is something along to the effect of within this episode is some racist shit um you know there were stereotypes then and there are stereotypes now those sorts of things um and it makes a point to say like instead of removing the episode we put this warning up so we can have like a discussion about the the racist uh joke here in this episode and then it like gives you a link to a website where you can go and talk about the shit further and I think that's a good way, uh, it's a good stance to have on on these, because this is absolutely from a very long time ago, um, the, the late 70s, I want to say, is when the show kind of was really doing its thing. I think it was like 77 to 81 or 82, one of those, in, in that ballpark. So, you know, a significant amount of time ago. It may not seem like it to a lot of people, but it is, you know, because now it is 2021, which means... 
These these episodes are over 40 years old, uh, minimum. So, I, I get it. But it's also gotten to the point where um, I'm not sure if it's if it's like my uh, radar for racism, but they'll have that warning up, and I'll watch the episode, and I'll sit there and, and like, was that it? That might have been it. Oh, that might have been it. And chances are, if I'm pointing at something and going like, that seemed a little off, it was probably a contributing factor to the presence of the warning. Because the problem is, is that at least with most of the episodes I've seen, it isn't just one thing. It's usually a couple of things. Um, and it's the combination of those things that probably added up to, hey, this is racist. Um, and I think that's that's interesting. And I wonder if this is going to pave the way to uh, Disney uploading some of its more offensive content, like Song of the South, um, which is incredibly racist. But so are a lot of the jokes in The Muppet Show, and so are scenes in Dumbo, and so on and so forth. Although the Dumbo thing is, is up for debate, if that is racist or if those are just like character you know what i mean there's a difference between like purporting a stereotype and just having ethnic characters in your show there's there is there is a difference um and whether or not dumbo is one or the other is still up for debate for a lot of people i know a lot of people think that the crows are racist um but there are some people who consider those crows to actually just be african-american characters um, and so it's, you know, one side or the other. It's the Speedy Gonzalez argument. Um, Speedy Gonzalez was, was a character from like a long time ago and they took him off the air because people thought he was racist. And then there was this massive outcrying from the, uh, Latino community because Speedy Gonzalez, despite his stereotypical appearances and, and mannerisms and stuff like that was, they loved him. So they brought him back, like, you know, so it's it's all about perspective and stuff like that. Um, and what might be offensive for one person might not be offensive for somebody else and those sorts of things. Um, but I, I'm very glad that they decided to go this route with The Muppet Show because I'm discovering as I'm watching this that quite a bit of it uh, is very much not uh, kosher by today's standards or even, according to these warnings, by the standards of the late 70s. So, I thought that was interesting. It's also a very peculiar show because I've never quite seen a show like it. Uh, it the, the whole idea of the show is fascinating. This, this vaudevillian theater thing where they'll have, like, these skits and bits. Um, and they just, like, they'll worm them in there. Like, if they have a funny joke. Most of the humor in the show is built off of one-liners and puns. Um, that's pretty much the entire focal point of the humor of it. Um, which is tough to do, you know, like coming up with custom puns and one-liners is, is hard, but that's what most of the things are, at least in the beginning of season one, that's what most of the jokes derive from. Um, and what I love about this show versus Muppets now is there are no like fucking super long intros presenting you uh, the skit you're about to see, you know, and these things are just legitimately funny. And I love the Swedish chef, like, to pieces every time he shows up. Just listening to that. Oh, my God. It's the best. Um, yeah, no, it's it's been it's been a ton of fun. And it's also fun to watch these characters evolve over the course of the show. Like, you'll see it. Uh, like, the original puppets for uh, Gonzo and uh, Sam Eagle look super shitty. 
and then they get way better in like the next season when they had like a higher budget and stuff like that. Um, and it, and I'm constantly reminded that, uh, Jim Henson studios is a working studio where they, they don't really tend to hang on to props and, and characters all that often. Um, unless they're, you know, important for the project they're working on and they'll recycle things all the time. Um, and it's, it's just really good. And it's also fun to see the the types of guest stars that they were able to get, especially in that like first season. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a fun ride. It's a fun uh, time capsule of what shit was like in the uh, the late seventies, early eighties. So, yeah, it's a it's a fun time, um, and I would recommend watching the Muppet Show, especially if uh, you like Muppets, if you like comedy, if you like completely random shows. One of the most random ones out there. No other show is really quite like it. It kind of stands alone. The Muppet Show. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Y'all may have seen in the news over the last couple of days that Disney Plus added a new international option to its streaming service known as Disney Plus Star. And what Star does for people in Canada, um, uh, where else? Europe, Australia, and soon to be like Hong Kong, South Korea, and Japan, allows is uh, more adult-oriented content to appear on Disney Plus, essentially where Hulu does not exist um is is the idea star is um hulu except it is only the stuff on hulu that disney directly owns so things that disney like full out just has in its in its wheelhouse so anything that was on abc or um now 20th century fox like that kind of stuff so futurama um is is in stars and so on and so forth and I woke up and I read these articles and I was like, ah, fuck, I want that on Disney Plus. But after doing some digging, um, Hulu just has more on it because not only does it have all of the stuff that Star has, um, but it has all the stuff that Hulu has, like all of its exclusives and all of the non-Disney related content that Hulu has like uh, made uh, distribution deals with. So Hulu has a, a wider selection than Disney Plus Star does. But Star is a fantastic thing that allows for Disney Plus subscribers all over the world to access some of those more um, adult-oriented stuff. And what's awesome about Star is that um, Disney Plus is opening the door for... Oh, God. My phone's making noises. Disney Plus uh, is now opened the door for, um, like, local studios local production facilities in these various countries to make content for star for local distribution so like there's uh, a lot of original stuff coming out of uh france for example france has some some stuff that's like set to debut here within 2021 that will be exclusive to disney plus star um and that is awesome this idea of these microcosm uh, shows and stuff having a streaming distribution deal essentially in like this international market and that's like that's it you know so for like indie studios and small developers and stuff like that who need like a place to showcase their stuff that normally might not have gotten the time of day now there is a like a built-in international streaming service uh, in one of the uh, cheapest streaming options out there 
um, to, to do that. That being said, though, with Star, uh, Disney Plus has now gone up internationally by, uh, I believe in Europe, it's gone from $6.99 to $8.99, which is pricey if you if you consider that in terms of like american dollars because the euro is stronger than the than the american dollar is um but it's gone up by two euros which is which is not nothing um and indeed disney plus will increase in price this year as well for american users um from 6.99 to 7.99 unless you bought disney plus in like that three-year um deal when it launched although that being said that was what 20 was it 2019 when Disney Plus aired? We might we might be getting close to the end of that as well. So um, the price is about to go up for everybody. Only by a dollar in America, but still, you know, it's still going to go up. Uh, so so get ready for that. And yeah, I love the idea that Disney is is putting more adult-oriented content on there. Um, and I'm sure if Disney could dissolve Hulu, they would. Um, since they do own the majority share of Hulu, which a lot of people forget. Um but they can't because of deals, ongoing deals. So in order for Disney to like, you know, maintain any kind of credibility, they got to keep those deals alive and all that stuff. Otherwise there's legal ramifications out the, out the yin yang. Um, but I'm sure if Disney could put it all under their fucking banner, they would. Um, and in a way they kind of did because you can get Hulu plus Disney plus and ESPN plus, right? Like bundled together in like a monthly package. So there is that. But there are people who have Disney Plus that don't have Hulu. And there are people who have Hulu that don't have Disney Plus. Um, but Disney, at least for American audiences, is basically saying, if you want to see everything that's Disney, you're going to need Hulu and you're going to need Disney Plus. And I know a lot of people out there are like, fuck you, Disney, for doing that. Especially because Hulu has ads and it's the worst. Um, yeah, so. Definitely interesting. But I'm happy for international audiences that now get star. Um, or for people with VPNs who can access international streaming services uh, through that. And then you could, you too can watch Star um, from any country in the world. Because all of a sudden, hey, you're in France. Even though you're actually in Columbus, Ohio. So, very fun stuff. Let's move on to the next thing in podcast. Now, before I get into this next story, I do want to clarify for the record that I think Avatar The Last Airbender, the original show, is one of the greatest animated shows of all time. You can't really compete with the mythology, the characters, the story, the succinctness of its three seasons, and it's out. It did some great things. It had some incredible plot lines. It had some of the best animated characters of all time. I'm looking at you, Iroh. It was incredible. And I fucking love it. It's one of the few TV shows I have on physical DVD. I even have Korra on DVD. I love this shit. It's my jam. Fucking Viacom and CBS just announced a new fucking Avatar studio that will build on the success of Avatar and Korra exclusively for Paramount Plus, which is what CBS All Access is becoming because... Nobody wanted CBS All Access, so they've expended it to Paramount. Apparently, because Paramount has a, a better PR thing. I don't know. But they're they're putting on Paramount Plus. So the creators of the original show are on as editors in chief or something. I don't know. They're like running the shit. Um so I guess we'll just kinda have to wait and see. 
Um, what the hell that's gonna be about? Apparently an animated theatrical film is in the works. That's all we know. We don't know what it's about. We don't know anything. We just know that they're making things. Um, so not really a lot to talk about on this particular subject, but I thought it's interesting because despite my love for the show and even the follow-up show, part of me just kind of wants to let it die. Like, everybody's so hungry and chomping at the bit. All of these streaming services are chomping at the bit for exclusives. We're the only ones that have this. You know what I mean? And it's interesting. I think this is one of those instances where video games are kind of ahead of the curve. Don't get me wrong. Xbox and PlayStation still very much have exclusive games and Nintendo is very enamored with their exclusive games but at the same time there are way more cross-platform games than there are exclusive games um I actually did a not a dissertation but I wrote like a 20 page essay on this for an economy class back in college exclusive games versus cross-platform games from a financial point of view which one is more lucrative and the answer uh, might surprise you. It doesn't matter if your game is exclusive or cross-platform. What matters is if your game is good. Because if your game sucks, nobody's going to buy it, regardless on how many fucking platforms you put it on. So you got to make a good game. That's the secret. Um, but Xbox and PlayStation, and even now to an extent, Switch and PC, have greater cross-platform experiences. Like, uh, like Rocket League, you can play with people on any system, and... Uh, Diablo 2, the remake, is going to have cross-progression between consoles. Like, there's a lot of, uh, like, community support between the, the heavy hitters when it comes to gaming. Indeed, like, Xbox and Sony and Nintendo and, like, Microsoft, like, the, the PC, Steam, you know? That's basically it when it comes to gaming. Like, mobile, I guess. But, who f- fuck mobile gaming. Um, I would I would argue that the, the gaming sphere of nowadays is more collaborative is more cross-promotional, is more unifying than it ever has been in the past. And streaming seems to be going in the exact opposite direction. You can find movies on more than one platform, that's for sure. But it seems so fucking cutthroat, doesn't it? Like, they're so desperate for exclusive contents, they're resuscitating all of these old fucking corpses from things from the long, long ago. Who was really clamoring for a Friends reunion episode? I loved Friends. I grew up watching Friends. I can't stand it now. It did not age well. Who's chomping at the bit for that shit? I just, I don't get it. They just, they're making all these exclusive things to try to get people to watch their stuff. I just, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know. Disney Plus making all of its stuff is, I was going to say it's one thing, but it's probably the best example because Disney is... What did they do? Like, last D23 Expo, they announced something like 50-plus new fucking shows for Disney+. Plus. If that doesn't prove my point, I don't know what is. They are milking their cash cows for every drop they are fucking worth. And it's... It, it kind Like, on one hand, exclusivity breeds, you know, like, competition, you know? And competition is by and large generally good for the consumer Uh, like that's that is like an economic thing you know like having your only option of internet service provider be comcast or time warner is bad 
because then Comcast can charge whatever the fuck they want for their service and there's not much you can do about it because they're your only option for the internet. Competition is good for the consumer and in this instance, I guess if there wasn't competition, they wouldn't feel the need to make these big moves and to create these exclusive pieces of content. Um, but at the same time, we're also paying quite a bit in order to get access to all this stuff. If you have Netflix, if you have Disney+, Plus, if you have Hulu, if you have HBO Max, you're spending anywhere between like 50 to 75 to maybe even $100, depending on how many streaming services you have a month in order to see all of these things. Um, and that's a lot. It's gonna, it's, we're gonna start doing, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people already are, but I mean, fucking piracy was a big deal and still is, you know, people are just going to start stealing the shit again. And then the studios are going to crumble because then they're not making money and they're going to stop making unique stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's just going to spiral. Um, I don't know why being all, all doomsday about it. I'm excited to see what the Avatar studio comes out with. If it's good. But if it's bad, well then, I guess I don't have to watch it. Um, I'm all for them making things. I'm just kind of sadly shaking my head and being like, can't we just like, I don't know. Not. Can't we just, I don't know. Just, uh, don't, don't ruin my avatars. I love that show. Leave, please make it good. Let's move on to the next thing in podcast. So. This, uh, this next bit is going to be, uh, a bit of a, uh, an in-depth look at season one and season two of Critical Role. I'm sure you're all sick of me talking about this, but I fucking love it. And the reason I want to talk about it now, um, not only, A, am I totally caught up, but B, season two of Critical Role has now passed the milestone of technically being longer, both in terms of episode count and recorded playtime of the first season of Critical Role. Meaning that we have spent more time as viewers with the characters of the Mighty Nine and then we have with Vox Machina. And I thought I would take a second and just kind of talk about the pros and cons of both shows, uh, which one I like better and all that kind of stuff. Season one of Critical Role was, for me, the launch point. I hopped on during the Briarwood arc in the first, like, 30-ish episodes of season one. I absolutely love Vox Machina. The characters are what I would call traditional heroes. Um, they certainly didn't start out that way uh, in their home game. But since they were playing for about three years before it ended up on stream, we don't know much about the home game except for snippets here and there. Uh, there's a single video that Ashley recorded on her YouTube channel about them finding a flying carpet, which is magical, and I love that video. Um, but they are very much traditional, like, heroes fighting a great evil, fighting multiple great evils to save the world. It is your classic good versus evil, triumph over adversity, um, the bonds of friendship, betrayal, love. It's got all those classic themes. In season one. So if that's the kind of story you're looking for, the classic good versus evil D&D game, Vox Machina is your bread and butter. We have now spent more time with the Mighty Nine than we ever did with Vox Machina. Even all the one shots. And Vox or Mighty Nine started off as a bunch of fucking assholes. Uh, what I kind of love about these two shows is Critical Role season one is very much like you're with a brand new group of friends who haven't really played D&D before. 
they make characters that are not too different from themselves as people. That's usually what happens when somebody makes a character for the first time. They're just like themselves, but maybe a little more extreme, maybe a little augmented. Maybe they're like more outgoing when the person is more introverted. You know, minor differences, but by and large, they are, are mostly reflections of the players themselves because that's a really comfortable place to begin when you don't really know what you want to do or really what your character is. It's just easier to play yourself just like a little twisted, a little weird, just something different about the, yourself as the character. And that's season one of Vox Machina. They're very close to uh, what these characters or what these actors are, are familiar with. And so it's a comfortable place to be. Mighty Nine very much was the opposite of that. Now that they have all of this experience playing D&D, the ability to create brand new fucking characters allowed them to come up with some really creative and really interesting different things. Like a halfling that uh, was cursed to become a goblin or uh, a furbolg uh like macabre tea drinking cleric you know just all these weird fucking characters really branching out in terms of what DD is capable of and they all started off as just a bunch of fucking assholes which is again a bit more realistic um that's one of the things i think i really love about season two of mighty nine and what i think a lot of people have really kind of glommed onto when it comes to season two is the uh the flaws of these characters they are not holier-than-thou destined heroes prophesized to defeat a great villain. They are just a loose group of a bunch of assholes who have come together because of their desire for money, essentially, in the beginning, as their driving factor to fight evil. Uh, they basically started off as a band of mercenaries, and then they kind of slowly developed into like, hey, here's a problem. This isn't great. We should do this, not because we're really being paid for it, but because it's the right thing to do. And they slowly over time learned right from wrong and have become heroes and are well on their way to fighting a great evil to save the world. Um, and that, that journey I'm sure is something very similar to what Vox Machina went through. But since as viewers, we didn't really see that with mighty nine, I think people can relate to them a lot more. Plus this season has a lot more in terms of representation. Um, there is a canonical main character lesbian relationship. There are a lot of NPCs that use they, them pronouns that are non-binary. Like all of these fantastic inclusive elements that feel natural because the actors have such a uh, an appreciation and are so supportive of all of the different gender and sexualities and perceptions and belief systems and all of these different things that make people people are being very well supported and appreciated and represented in season two so there's a lot of great things going on with the mighty nine and i think because the characters are more dynamic because they have flaws because they aren't perfect because they are a bunch of people just trying to find their way through the world that resonates with a lot of the people watching the show. I know it resonates with me. I know a lot of my friends who watch the show like it for the same reasons. And we all fight over like who our favorite character is. Even though we all love every character. Um, it is, it's really fantastic to be a part of, of this community. And to be able to talk to people and appreciate things. Like Bo and Yasha uh, going on their first date. And uh, Ford and Jester, like, getting together and all these great, wonderful moments. And the excitement and the, the joy that the characters feel and the actors 
are just having a blast and you could tell you could see the light like in their faces it's it's wonderful no piece of media out there that i've experienced has a higher barrier of entry than critical role does simply because of how many episodes there are but hopefully this little thing has given you some insight on if you do watch a season of critical role from the beginning which one you might want to go after if really high quality visuals like in terms of the video um if uh you want those sorts of things you're definitely going to want to go for season two it's got a higher production value they've worked out a lot of the kinks and it's going to be really good right out the gate season one goes through a lot of set changes it goes through a lot of uh cast changes there are a lot more guest stars in season one. Season one also starts in like the middle of the story. So it can be a little jarring. It can be a little weird. So keep that in mind. But uh, I mean, I love the Mighty Nine and I love Vox Machina. I think on some level, I'm always going to love Vox Machina just a little bit more because it was my it was my first experience with Critical Role. And a lot of my friends, their first experience with Critical Role was season two because the barrier of entry for Vox Machina was just way too high. Um, and we have absolutely no idea how long season two is going to go. Not a clue. We, we kind of had a sense when the end of season one was coming along and they will warn us, you know, they, they'll tell us when we're getting close and then when they start making plans for season three of critical role, I imagine we're probably a ways away. Um, I believe the characters are currently level 14. Um, and based on what has been laid out, I can think of a couple of like, even bigger bads that are kind of waiting in the wings uh, to come to the to the front when it comes to this whole fucking campaign. Um, so I imagine we've got a ways to go. If I had to predict, um, I would guess maybe another year or two of the Mighty Nine before they were able to draw it to a close. Um, we will simply have to wait and see. But I don't think the Mighty Nine are going away anytime soon. Um, and if you're going to get kind of caught up on it, you should probably move uh, sooner rather than later because that barrier to entry is only going to grow and it's going to become more and more insurmountable to to get on board. Um, yes, I absolutely love Critical Role. To, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of days and beyond, it is the best D&D show I have ever seen and I have seen many D&D shows. I've even played a lot of D&D and... Um, I would be lying if I said I have not had dreams where I was a guest star on a critical role. That's actually been a bit of a recurring dream. It's happened more than once where I will, I will just like kind of have a dream where I'm just at the table with them all and I've got a character and it's just, it's just a blast. I don't know what kind of character I would play if, um, if, if I was ever offered the chance to be on critical role, but I would fucking figure it out because that would be incredible. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. We got some brand spanking new Pokemon news out of this last week. There's a Pokemon Direct celebrating 25 years of Pokemon, which is kind of crazy to think about that I have been alive longer than Pokemon, which is one of the most profitable intellectual properties of all time. I think it actually is the number one, but you would have to fucking double check that because pff, I don't know. It's early in the morning. Anyway, we got some more news on Pokemon Snap, which comes out in April, and I'm very excited for that. Pokemon Snap on the original N64 was 
probably like my favorite game on that entire console. I didn't have it when I was a kid. I only got my hands on the N64 in like later years. Like my college roommate had it, and so I bought some cartridges uh, just to just to play it on there. And I'm sure if I looked through all of my boxes, I might find an original N64 cartridge for Pokemon Snap, but I'm not 100% sure. And then it was on like the Wii Shop um, for a while, and I played it on the Wii. I can recall back in like 2011 when the Wii came out. When did the Wii come out? A long time ago. I'm not looking it up, but a while back. And so the new Pokemon Snap on the Switch is going to be just a ton of fun. I cannot wait for that. It is It is just... It's going to be exactly like Animal Crossing was, which is just like a nice fucking game. You know, very low stakes, very low stress. It's just pleasant. It's just nice. It's just fun. And that's what Animal Crossing was, and that's what Pokemon Snap is going to be. So I'm very excited about that. The remake I have been dying for since they've been doing remakes, really is finally coming, and that is Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. So they're remaking the fourth generation of Pokemon games that originally came out on the Nintendo DS um, in like 2009, I want to say. I love the Sinnoh region. My all-time favorite Pokemon, Lucario, comes from the Sinnoh region. Manaphy, my favorite Legendary, comes from the Sinnoh region. And that period of video, or Pokemon games in particular, was really like fucking awesome because around that time we also got like the pokemon ranger games uh mystery dungeon was really popular around then and it was just a really great time to be a pokemon fan so i have a lot of really fond memories of the center region and the characters cynthia dawn i loved the starters i love the world i love going up north where it's super fucking cold like up center mountain rcs the god pokemon and all that shit i'm such a big fan team galactic hell yeah i i am so excited for that remake I will be getting the shiny Pearl version for no other reason than that is the version I had when I was a kid. I had Pearl. Now, if they fucking have, like, remember when they uh, remade um, Sapphire and Ruby and they had the, the Delta Emerald episode? If they have a Platinum episode at the end of this game that deals with uh, Giratina and all of that, like, alternate reality shit that they had in Pokemon Platinum, which was so fucking cool... That would be the best. That would be incredible. I would absolutely love that. Either way, that remake comes out later this year on the Switch, and I'm incredibly excited because Pokemon Sword, for me, was incredibly disappointing. The game lasted, like, maybe 18 hours if you just kind of mainline the campaign. Um, it wasn't very difficult, and it wasn't very fun either. I did not have fun playing Sword. I gave that game away because I'm just like, I'm never going to play this again. And so it is... It is gone forever. I'm, I'm never going to play that game again. I didn't get the expansions. I just didn't care. I hated I hated that whole thing. Um, it was it was not good. It looked good, but that was it. Um, and now we get like this kind of cool chibi style, um, similar to how they remade uh, Link's Awakening, which looks incredible. I love the way Link's Awakening looks. Um, and I think this game is going to really benefit from that style. And we get it on the Switch, so I'm really excited about that. So hell yeah. Can't wait to play that. And getting into the Shining Pearl. And then the final new Pokemon game is Pokemon Legends Arceus. A open world style game similar to Breath of the Wild is what everybody is thinking. We don't really know at this point because all we have is like one trailer really. Um, set in feudal Japan. So we're going way back in time. Uh, to like the dawn of Pokemon. In -ning 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 -ning. Um, really. So not really sure what that game's going to really be like. Um... Honestly, I know everybody loves this idea of like just exploring a world 
and being able to go anywhere and catch all of these Pokemon. And on one level, that does sound fun. But on the other, I like the stories of the linear Pokemon games. And when it comes to open world games, like Skyrim or Cyberpunk or anything like that, once you get like the freedom to go wherever you want, I usually kind of get bored. I like, I like structure in my video games. Like God of War has an incredibly tight story and you go along this amazing adventure. I prefer that as my gaming style, quite frankly. And then you get games like World of Warcraft, which aren't really like, they're not really games for me. It's just something I do, you know? Um, like you go and do your dailies and you get higher numbers and it's just a thing you do. Um, so that's, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, like when I played Skyrim, I played it for a month straight and I loved it. And then I stopped playing it for a single day and then I never really went back to it. When I played Cyberpunk, I played it for like three weeks straight and I loved it. And then I dropped it for a day and then I never went back. And that's, that's the problem. It's just like the, the second you like get off that bandwagon, it's so hard to get back onto it because all of the shit you have to do is just so fucking daunting. It's the same equivalent of having, you know, all of these streaming services or even just Netflix and you have thousands of things you could watch and you can't pick any of them. That's open world gaming for me. It's just like, there's a billion things you can do and it's just like, I don't know what I want to do. So I'm just, I'm just going to stop. You know, like I can only replay Minecraft if I have like a goal of a thing I want to make. And then you have a drive and then it makes sense. But in open world games, it's just like, oh, fucking, I don't know. So a Pokemon open world game, like the, the desire to air quotes, catch them all is not a driving factor for me and never has been. I'm just like, I don't care. I'm here for the story. I'm here to get my six Pokemon. I'm gonna pick my six Pokemon. They're, they're my guys. We're gonna go straight to the top. And then once we beat the fucking whole game, that's it, and I'm out, and I'm done. So yeah, Arceus is gonna be, it's gonna, I'll keep an eye on it, um, obviously, because it's Pokemon. And if it's great, then that's awesome. But I will probably be the first to say that the footage they showed us looked like shit it looked it looked slow like the frame rate it was having issues the detail on all the graphics like the grass and shit looked bad like it looked pre-alpha footage not like a finished game if the finished game looks like that i'm skipping it like full stop it looks like an up it looks like a, like a fucking ported mobile game it doesn't look good to me um so there's there's that as well although i will point this out uh, a lot of people were confused as to why they chose these three starters uh, you got Cyndaquil, um, Oshawott, and Rowlet. Um, three different starters from three completely different generations of the starters here. Um, and apparently the reasoning why is that Rowlet evolves into an archer, which is very apropos of Feudal Japan. Um, Oshawott evolves into Samurott, which is, you know, Samurai, Feudal Japan. And I believe Typhlosion's Japanese name uh, roughly equates to Shogun, which is also a term from Feudal Japan. Um, so that is why it was those three. They all have basis in inspirations from this period of Japanese history. Um, and that's that's pretty cool. So, well, I will keep an eye on it. I am always interested in new Pokemon games, regardless of what, what they're about and what they are. Especially an open world Pokemon game. I know a lot of people have been wanting that for a really long time, so we'll just see how it goes. But I would be lying if I said that it was the one I'm looking forward to the most. The one I'm looking forward to the most is hands down Generation 4 Remake. I cannot wait to get my hands on that. It is going to be awesome going around and collecting those legendaries in Gen 4 were some of my best fucking uh, video game memories. The like the the Uxis, um, the, like the the spirit Pokemon at the Three Lakes. I loved that shit. Oh man, I think Heatran showed up in Gen 4. 
Reggie Gigas showed up in Gen 4. Uh, we got um, a lot of third evolutions in Gen 4. Like um, Rhydon's or Rhyhorn's third evolution came in Gen 4. And um, stuff like that. It was just it was just fun. It really it really felt like it was uh like everything up until that point was just like here's your next generation Pokemon in a fun new world and it's the same basic thing as the one before it. You know, you had Gen one with Kanto, you had Gen two with um Johto and Gen three with um fuck Gen three was in Hoenn, and those all feel roughly like the same game, um because they all kind of have the same basic flow to them. Um, Gen 4 to me really did feel different. Um, it, it felt it felt higher stakes. Um, it felt you know different, and it also introduced like more 3D maps in the in the in the 2DS. Like it, the scale of that game was just so much greater, um, and it felt like a really cool step up. Kind of like when Resident Evil 4 landed, everyone was just like, "Whoa, this is so different from the ones that came before it." It's cool. It's awesome, and I love it. So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. So we'll see. Um, I am not surprised at all that they did not announce, uh, what, what, what generation are we on now? Gen 9? Is it Gen 9? I think it's Gen 9. Um, I want to say Sword was, Sword might have been Gen, no. Yeah, yeah, we're on Generation 9 of Pokemon. I'm not surprised at all they didn't announce that. Once Arceus lands, I'd be willing to bet that, like, middle of next year, um, they will start releasing news like that. I think they're gonna go remake, new game, you know, that kind of but bounce back and forth. Um, who knows? We'll see. But if it's anything like Sword, I'm gonna fucking skip it. Because, sweet Jesus Christ, I haven't hated a Pokemon game that much since Black and White. And I never finished Black and White because I thought it was trash. Anyway, let's move on to the next link in the podcast. Alright, it is time for another unboxing on the podcast because those are so much fun. And uh, this is probably the most exciting unboxing that I will ever do, um, at least for for right now. <laughs> After months of waiting and weeks of trying, I was finally able to get my hands on the disc version of the PlayStation Five. I ordered it at 4:30 this morning for Target and in-store pickup. I have it here physically. I'm now the proud owner of a PlayStation Five. And I thought it would be fun to do my patented audio-based unboxing. So, here we go. I am now cutting the sticker. Oh, yeah. The box itself is, I mean, it's massive. You, I'm sure you can, you've seen pictures of it. It's mostly white with, like, a blue top. Um, this box is dinged all to hell, which is, I'm sure, fine. As long as the contents on the inside are sound. I don't particularly care because I'm getting rid of the box anyway. So, who really cares? Uh, box unfolds origami style, which is weird. And then there's an internal lip, or do I just need to, oh, I need to take, this is like a covering, all right. Gotcha. Take the covering off, covering goes away. And now we are left with a plain white box that says PlayStation on it, all right. Um, there's a little tab here, let me just, there we go. Pull the lid back. Uh, Provides instructions for how to open it the rest of the way. That's fine. So we pulled this up. Got it. Now we got some stuff. Okay. So first off, we have uh, what looks to be the quick start guide and the safety guide for the PlayStation 5. So we got some books. So I'll take a look at those here in a little bit. Uh, we have 
the controller right at the top. So let's let's look at that. Okay. This is the DualSense 5, DualShock 5. Um, it is a little not see-through. It's reflective. Um, interesting. So feels a lot like the PlayStation 4 controller. It's longer in the handle and pointier too. Like the the ends of the controller have like a sharp sharpness to them that the PlayStation 4 didn't have. Um, feels pretty good. The, here I'll click some buttons. Here's the trigger. Uh, the bumper. The joysticks. And the the D-pad and the cir circle buttons. They're all made out of this um kind of clear plastic material. At least the face buttons are. The triggers are made out of. Uh, like black plastic the big pad in the middle still clicks pretty much everywhere you press on it it clicks uh, joysticks click in there is a microphone toggle on off switch which is kind of nice um, I can see the charging port and that's pretty much it it's clean it's nice I don't see any marks of damage or anything on the controller itself it looks pretty good I like it I like it more trash toss that uh, and then we had there was a cord here looks to be your standard power cord uh, almost equivalent to what you would see in like a laptop uh, just without the power brick attached to it so we got a power cord that's fine get back over here you motherfucker all right so now I pull this back pull this all can I just get out of there all right so that bit's gone uh, we got another cord here this is a uh, Looks like a controller charging cord. Just USB to USB-C, your standard charging cord. It's the exact same as my phone, so that's nice. Uh, and then we have, what's this? What's this? There's magic everywhere. What's this? A stand. A stand for the console itself. Um, and it looks like it comes with a little hook thing on the side that I'm not 100% sure what that's for. Um, I'm guessing it's to lock the console in place, would be my guess. Um, but it comes with a little, little stand. Um, it's got some rubber feet on the bottom, it's made out of plastic, the whole thing feels kind of flimsy to be perfectly honest with you, but as long as it keeps the thing up, then who really cares? So they gave you a stand, that's nice. Uh, another cord, this is, uh, HDMI. So it comes with your HDMI in and out to actually plug it into the TV. Uh, I'm guessing this is, it says... Yeah, high-speed HDMI, so it can do the, the 4K and the 8K and all that shit, so I'm glad that they have that in-box. And then the piece de resistance is the console itself, which, just looking at it in this box, is fucking massive. Come on! There we go. Then we take these little things off. And this little thing off. And it's in a bag, which I will now remove from its, uh, or no, it's not in a bag, it's just wrapped and stuff. And there we are, the PlayStation 5. And that box is empty, so we can get rid of that while I look at the console itself with my own eyes for the first time. I wasn't entirely sure until this moment that I had gotten the correct version. This is the one with the disk drive. Uh, so it is the larger of the two. And when I say this thing is big, you can take my word for it. This thing is big. 
it is about oh god i mean let's see how can i what what's a standard unit of measure that i have here um <laughs> it is about it's almost two xbox controllers wide and one two uh, about two and three quarters xbox controllers tall the it is it is square the whole thing's square i thought it was going to be like kind of canted forward at like a sharp point but it's just kind of flared with these weird giant white panels um there's a giant fan at the back we've got two usb ports uh, an ethernet port an hdmi port and then the power port at the back and that's it uh in terms of stuff located at the back uh the there is the embossed playstation logo which looks pretty cool uh the front has another hdmi port and a um what looks to be a USB-C port, uh, which I guess allows you to charge the other way. That looks like a USB-C port or something like that. There's the eject button and then the power button, and that's about it on the front. It's very, actually kind of minimalist. Looks like there are huge gaps for airflow all over this thing, which is awesome. On the front, along the top, and down the back. So they definitely thought about um, air passing through this machine uh, pretty consistently. I wish I knew how to like bust this thing open so I could see the insides, but I'm afraid to take the white panels off. I'm sure they can for the sake of like cleaning this thing, but I don't know how to do that. So I'd want to do some research on that before I just started like trying to rip the thing apart. Uh, on the bottom we've got, let's see, where we got the bottom? Looks like a reset button, or maybe that's the button to like activate or open the chassis. That might be more accurate. Um, and then like all the fine print and a couple more intake fans there along the bottom. How does this stand work? Let's try to experiment with this. So we've got some hooks, which I'm guessing go in the back. I think it's a, this looks like a stand. Um, maybe this is a, I mean, why would you need a stand to hold it vertically? Maybe the stand is to hold it at like a different position. I'm not entirely sure, but the stand itself is starting to make less and less sense. Maybe it's in the quick start guide. Let's take a look at that. I'm gonna grab me that quick start guide and see if we can't answer my, my questions. Uh, let's see here. Flippity flip. Flutity flip flu. Um, do 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 do. No, it is, it is a stand for the vertical position. Attach the base. Always attach the base to the console, whether it's in the vertical or horizontal position. Place your console on a flat surface when attaching the base. You'll need to reconfigure the base from the position of your, um, for the position on console. Rotate the top and bottom part until, okay. Keep rotating until you hear it click. Make sure the hook is in the position as illustrated below before attaching the base to the console. Okay, so it is, there's the click. Before attaching the base to the console. So, looks like the hooks are in the back. So, console's in. And do I just slide this thing backwards? I, I guess. Yeah. Um, that seems bizarre. It doesn't, it doesn't really lock in though. Um, at least not how I can see. Yeah, it's not, not really locking in. It's definitely going in the right direction though because of how the PlayStation is flared. Um, I guess it just stops it from going back any further and the, the base doesn't really secure to the console itself, which is kind of strange. Oh no, it does. The, the thing on the bottom um, allows you to screw it in. Oh yeah, look at that. There is a, there is a screw. 
Um, so you can screw the base to the console and attach it that way. Gotcha. All right. I understand. Um, if you want to do it horizontally, uh, that can be done without the screw. That's pretty cool. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm not entirely sure how I'm storing this, so I'm not going to screw in the base just yet. Um, and then after that, you just plug and play, I guess. You plug in the HDMI, you plug in the power cord, charge the controller, bish, bash, bosh, you're off to the races. And that's exactly what I'm about to go do. Um, so, unboxing, pretty good. Um, it looks awesome. I'm very happy to finally have this fucking thing in my possession. So, hip-hop hooray for that. Uh, I'm gonna go plug it in and come back here in a little bit and we'll talk about how, like, the whole thing looks and feels and stuff. I finally got my hands on it and I played all of Astro's Playroom, Rec Room, Rec Play, Rec, whatever the fuck it's called. Um, like the weird tech demo that comes pre-installed on the console. Uh, it's, it's a fairly decent platformer. It takes about two hours to like complete, not 100%, but like, you know, work your way through all the levels and stuff like that. Uh, and it's a, it's a very good uh, representation of what the console can do. It showcases the controller very well which is what it's designed to do. Uh, the haptic feedback in the controller is very good. Um, it allows you to feel like every footstep the character takes and all the actions the character takes has like, you know, distinctive uh, feedback through the controller in the form of like varying levels of vibration, which was very fun. My favorite part of the controller is the, um, the uh, adaptive triggers where it feels like uh, it has like increased resistance depending on what the triggers are doing. So it takes more strength to actually use the triggers. Um, somebody used the phrase like spring-loaded where it, it feels like there's just like some tension to it. You know, it, ta it takes more to use the triggers uh, to the point where if I use triggers that don't have it, it just feels kind of flimsy now. It just feels like you're clicking a button and not pulling the trigger. And so you feel more into it. Um, a couple of the things the controller does are a little gimmicky like the microphone where you fucking blow on it. But I found that if you just kind of like rub your thumb over it, then you can just fucking mimic the blowing motion and you don't actually have to like move the controller closer to your face, which is great because I usually play where the controller's like hidden underneath blankets and I don't want to have to unbury the controller to go like <laughs> and like do air shit. So I just move my thumb over it and I'm just like, and there we go. The touchpad is good. It works pretty well. Um, yeah, everything else about the controller was awesome. Uh, it all feels really good and very intuitive. Uh, it also has like motion sensors where you can like tilt the controller and do things like that, which is fine. It's kind of gimmicky, but it's been a gimmick for a long time, so that's okay. The game itself was a lot of fun. I very much enjoyed that. Um, I'm never one to like go back and complete like 100% things. So, you know, I beat it and it's done and now I'm just going to go and play Persona 5, uh, which is what I really want to play on, uh, on not just this console. I just really want to play Persona 5, so I'm probably going to like make a nice dinner and just fucking set up and just play that for a couple of hours and it's just gonna be a lot of fun but so far my my feelings with the console are are very positive the fucking thing is massive but it does fit in my cabinet um not as many cords as the playstation 4 mostly because i don't have the vr headset and apparently this vr headset is just going to be a single cord the next generation one so i'm pretty excited about that um and yeah like it looks incredible i mean remember when everybody got like an HD TV the first time and everybody watched was like footage of fish and like coral reefs and how pretty that was it's that experience again because now it's like 8k which I've never experienced before so the the graphical fidelity of that shit was unbelievable I sat there looking at like the little particles and pixels and stuff like that for a while it looks incredible 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with how this thing fucking looks. It feels really good to play. It looks incredible. Um, as long as I leave the door open in my cabinet, it doesn't overheat. Uh, but I, I did play with it closed and it turned into a little sweat box in there. But it, yeah, everything about it is, is just fantastic. Not as many games out there um, on that console, obviously, because it's brand new. Uh, and I, I asked for like the, the three or four games that I want to play for my birthday. So I'm obviously not going to pick those up. And there's nothing else on the console I really want to get. I know there's a lot of great games coming down the pipeline I'm really excited to get my hands on. But as of right now, not particularly. Um, but then again, it did take me a while to buy the PlayStation 4 as well. Um, but when I did, I got like Bloodborne and Uncharted 4 and, you know, all these great games. And my, my library for PlayStation 4 was pretty small by the end of that console. I only had like 30 games and most of those were like shitty VR games, you know, like legitimately great games for the PlayStation 4. I can just play on the PlayStation 5 and that's one of the great things about it. Like God of War and Bloodborne and all that things. I have it all installed on my PlayStation 5, so... Very pleased. Very, very pleased with uh, with this purchase. It was well worth the effort of spending weeks of my life watching Twitter trying to get my hands on one of these fucking things. So, early early feedback is solid. Good job, Sony. Can't wait to play all these fucking games. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. WandaVision, episode 8 on Divney+. Plus. Uh, I believe it's the longest episode so far. I think this one's sitting pretty around 40 minutes. Um, and for a pretty good reason, uh, this episode not only gives us the backstory on Agatha Harkness, uh, who is a witch from the Salem Witch Trials of the 1600s, so she's been around the block a little while, but it also gives us Wanda's origins, from the death of her parents to her, um, being a member of Hydra, uh, to, uh, a scene where she's talking to Vision in the, uh, Avengers compound, um, to her creating the hex around Westview and kind of gives us the motivations therein. That's kind of basically the entire episode. Um, it's a good episode. I like it a lot. It really fleshes out the characters and it provides us a lot of great backstory on, um, on the whole fucking show, including that she did not take Vision's body from S.W.O.R.D. She just kind of crafted her own Vision. Um... And she was not animating or puppeting his corpse like we all thought. So that's good. Good on you, Wanda, for not being that fucking far gone. And it seemed like she was just really put together and then kind of couldn't take it. And uh, according to Agatha, she spawned chaos magic. And Agatha was the first person to call her the Scarlet Witch, which I thought was appropriate. So that's fun. Um... Yeah, and then at the very end in the after credit scene, we see that Sword has uh, reanimated Vision's body in this like ghostly white rendition of Vision, um, which is very interesting in and of itself. And I guess they're gonna send Vision into the hex. Who the fuck knows? Um, that'd be that'd be interesting. But what's the really interesting bit is that um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's nine episodes. Want. WandaVision. I think it's supposed to be nine episodes. Let me just double check. Um, did it say how many? Like, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be nine episodes. Um, yes. Yeah, run for nine episodes. So we got one more episode of this, uh, which is next week, and that's the finale. And you'll be interested to see if they can wrap it up. 
and have it be a nice, neat little package. Because, I mean, there still seems to be quite a few problems. And I know this... Sorry, I'm yawning. I'm tired. I know this show directly leads into the second Doctor Strange movie. So if Strange shows up, he's got one more chance to to be in the show. Um, and now it seems like it's going to be a fucking brawl between Wanda and Agatha. And it really does seem like Hayward is um, kind of manipulating the whole thing from behind the scenes, which really... Or not even from behind the scenes. He's just manipulating everything. And that gives even more credence to the theory that he's Ultron. Um, cause to me, that makes a lot of sense, um, for him to be so enamored with vision and with Wanda for him to be Ultron. Um, and I would absolutely love that reveal. So I guess we'll see. Um, I haven't looked at what the internet has said about this episode and the internet has had a lot of time to say things about the episode because I, instead of watching this at like five o'clock in the morning, like I normally do, I'm watching this one at like eight o'clock at night uh, when the episode comes out. So let's let's take a look at the internet. What are you what are you saying, internet? Let's see the top top things. Um, doo doo boo boo. Uh, do do do. There's another mid credit scene. Um, I did like that line as well in that scene uh, with. Vision and Wanda, the line, um, what is grief if not love persevering? I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I thought thought that was incredibly sweet. And I liked that. Um, I liked that a lot. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, everybody's just talking about um, everybody, everybody, how awesome, how awesome they all are. Uh, and it was not lost on me that Wanda drives a red car. Uh, I thought that was good. I also loved that scene of her driving through actual Westview and us seeing, like, all of the people we've gotten to know over the course of the uh, the sitcom show, just, like, being normal people. It's it's a really good show. It really is just kind of, like, one of a kind. I've never really seen a show quite like this. The production values are just incredible. I'm putting money down right now that her kids do not survive the show. I think her kids will die. Because I don't think her kids are actually alive at all. So even if she beats Agatha, I think her kids will vanish. Um, which is is unfortunate. Um, but I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with Vision. I mean, Vision in the Hex doesn't exist. But now Vision's body outside the Hex does. I would love if, like, the two combined and, like, her powers just kind of, like, found a, a place once again within his corpse. And he just was back at, like, full steam. I think that'd be very sweet and very awesome. But it would also be, like... A little saccharine you know it's a little too good to be true but we'll see i mean if she wields chaos magic i love how they say that like that supposed to mean something to us i'm like i don't, I don't understand anything I'm like i guess it kind of comes off of the um idea that agatha spent her like entire life like learning how to use magic right so you know it takes time and sorcerer supreme right he went to class for a long time to figure out all the shit he knows um and he's like wicked smart, but she can just do things instinctually. So, you know, it kind of makes sense to have chaos magic. Chaos control! Um, yeah, but it's chaos magic. You gotta say it like that. Can't be other any other way to say it. It's not Wingardium Leviosa, it's chaos magic. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. And finally this week, I'm gonna break some 
breaking news. No one's gonna tell you this. You're gonna get it straight from me. The Tom and Jerry movie is exactly what you fucking think it is. It's it's everything that you think. Uh, like the normal stereotypes. Oh, kids' movies are trash. There you go. Couldn't even couldn't even finish it. Couldn't even really get into it. I just the fucking introduction with the dated pop song in its entirety was so fucking like early aughts that I'm just like, I cannot believe this movie was made today. I thought we were past this. The second, the, like in the first 30 seconds, one of the animated birds shits right in the face of another animated bird. Like that's what you're fucking signing up for. And I'm just like, no. And even like, it just looks terrible visually. Tom and all the all the cartoon animations looks like utter dog shit, and the people like air quotes looking at the characters are not good at it. So there's a you can like the only I I crapped out with Jerry dancing in front of Tom's blind cat performance, which is incredibly offensive. Um, but like the people watching Jerry dance are not looking even remotely close to where Jerry's supposed to be. They're just kind of like, wow. Yeah, do it. Yeah, like it's it's atrocious. Um, so fuck that movie. I knew it was gonna be bad. Everyone knew it was gonna be bad, and it is. So I just wanted to confirm that here at the end of the of the podcast, in case anybody had even a shred of hope for that movie. I'm here to quash it. I'm here to I'm here to let you know that you can skip it. You will miss absolutely nothing, and you will be better for it. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I will see you all next week for another brand new episode. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>